Jerry Garcia meant so much to so many. There's a compelling argument to be made that without Jerry, there would have been no Grateful Dead. But when it came to Jerry's side projects, he was a different person. He was channeling the music he truly loved. Motown, soul, old world folk tunes, Bob Dylan covers, and carryover Grateful Dead songs such as Sugary, Deal, and They Love Each Other. He got to play with his longtime rhythm mate, John Kahn, whom he started collaborating with in 1970 at The Matrix. Jerry always treated the accompanist and his band the way he would have wanted to have been treated. Some leaders fly in their private jet and have the band travel separately, not Jerry. If he was flying first class, then his band was flying first class. If he was staying at an upscale hotel in New York, everybody stayed there. When it came to money, everybody got the same cut. Jerry recognized that it was his band, but he didn't want to be out there alone. He wanted to have a musical conversation with other cats, and those cats needed to feel that they were all pulling in the same direction. Jerry also inspired and challenged people to access their true nature. And I get a chance today to speak to somebody who was part of that milieu, a decorated singer and somebody who is very near and dear to my heart. Liz Styers, welcome back to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thank you, Jake. It's good to talk to you again. It is. You know, um, I, I just wanted to ask you, did, do you remember the first the first show you did with the Garcia band? Uh, yeah, I do, actually. It was a very unique show, and I'd like you to portray whatever you remember, because John was in Europe, and uh, John Kahn was, so please, the floor is yours. I'd love you to talk, because that was the most odd uh, Jerry Garcia band show, one of them in the history of, of his shows. So I'm going to have to go back, and because really what there was a couple of shows that happened right up front and whether it was the Santa Cruz catalyst or it was the Fairfax pavilion, I couldn't be entirely sure. I'm sure somebody out there knows exactly. Um, what I remember is that drive to the catalyst in Santa Cruz and, uh, and we really weren't sure what was going on. I know that uh, Merle Sanders showed up because although he had, uh, started Melvin Seals like a couple weeks before. Merle didn't know whether he was playing that gig or not. <laughs> um, and uh, I remember because Ezra was on that show, that was one of the, the beginning and Dowd was playing drums. So we were driving to Santa Cruz and chanting in hopes that Jerry would make it there <laughs> and not get lost in the Santa Cruz Hills. Oh uh, my gosh. So we were doing the, she was really into the Namio Rengekyo and I, I had never heard it before, but we chanted all the way down. Anyway, um, it was really, I was starstruck. I had not, um, you know, been in a crowd like that and, and really seen an audience. The way the audience responded to the JGB band was just, just so beautiful and unique. So um, I can't tell you the set list, but I remember that was the beginning and it was a warm up for the Waldorf, which we played uh, was it the Waldorf or Warfield? You're right. No, it was, a, it was Warfield. You're absolutely right. The first show. That was the one. And so we were warming up for the Warfield, exactly. I had a chance to go see um, <clears throat> Grateful Shred, which is an amazing cover band at the, the Catalyst, um, which I believe uh, is called the Civic Auditorium, Santa Cruz 62581. 
And the thing about that show that's so odd is that Phil Lesh played bass on that show. You know, I mean, John wasn't there, right? You know, it was just, uh, I mean, when you well, got, go ahead. Phil was there for that. He was, he, Phil played for that show. He also played for Fairfax Pavilion. You're absolutely and, right. Yeah. yeah. So, um, right. We were, we were like, a, a, it was a one-off situation. We didn't play with him again, although we did play with Kreutzmann a few times, but. Can you talk about, um, you know, like, ultimately you were young and starstruck, but you were not a, you were not a, a rookie by any means. You had already been on the bandstand and you'd been in the recording studio. Can you just talk about how you centered yourself that day? And, um, you know, you hadn't really been like cultivating your yogic practice at that point. I, maybe I'm wrong, but yeah, I'm just like, like at a certain point, did you feel like you and Ezra were able to, at least for a period of time, get locked in and feel, I just cannot imagine uh, yeah. how, how magical that must have been if you had felt that groove that first night. You know, I, I did feel that groove and I was, I had done a lot of harmony singing. I mean, both in the band with my sister, but I had sung in vocal jazz ensemble and choir. So I was super comfortable uh, singing those backup parts. And Jerry was really wonderful to work with and we had worked those harmonies out. So I wasn't worried about my my part. You know, I wasn't, you know, out front with my guitar, you know, doing a whole singer songwriter thing. I was really easy and the, and the crowd was so welcoming. There really wasn't a lot of difficulty dropping in and feeling just in the flow, you know? And and as far as like you, can you talk about uh, like the way you and Ezra, everyone had their own vocal blend. I mean, the women after you, uh, uh, you know, Jacqueline LeBranch, Gloria Jones. I mean, they came from a more sanctified setting, but you were steeped in, in you know, singing and in being in bands. Can you just talk about the way you and Ezra or at your at the at your best with her? Um where you guys, you know, were able to fit in in the octave range? Well, yeah. I mean, I had sung second alto in, in a collegiate chorale. I had a, a pretty low voice. And although I had been singing Motown, singing along with Motown since I was a little kid, like I was really steeped in Motown. Yeah. So I could belt out high, but I didn't have the range that Ezra had. And I know she made a comment about it, which surprised me because uh, she didn't seem to have trouble with the high parts. And I, I really felt like she had more power in the higher range, but I didn't see it as, as really any kind of an obstacle. At least I don't remember it as one. Um, and, you know, later when Julie Stafford joined, you know, she, she also had a higher vocal range. So we were able to lock in really easily. And I think I sent you that recording that I made with John Kahn and his, you know, first home studio, and I was singing Tuesday Morning, which was a song he wrote. When oh. I listen to it, you know, you just get how deep my voice was. I mean, I, I and funnily enough, my, I've gotten more upper range and less lower range as I've gotten older. And I don't know why that is, but that's just how it is. Well, let me ask you, no, that's, so you don't, there's, can you just like sort of give a good guess as to why that is? That's fascinating that you've become higher as you've gotten older. I would say there were two things. It takes, you know, when you start out uh, 
singing in the style of music, which really I was like covering, you know, this is 1970, whatever. Well, this was 82, but I really started out, you know, singing Motown, covering Bonnie Raitt, singing in a lower register. Right. And so um, it wasn't that hard for me. And tell me the question again, because I just got lost in that thought. <laughs> well, no, it just, it's fat, like you, it, it's just interesting that you had a lower lower voice as you know, oh, I know. yeah so young, my, but as, yeah, as you've gotten older how you cultivated so it. i think the point is is that um singing in my upper range and really getting control of higher register didn't come till later and i and i really you know after the jerry garcia band i worked vocally for a long time and i got more easeful in my upper range but the part about um how I would say that the, my losing of some of my lower range has everything to do with having been teaching and singing hard and teaching harmony groups. So I would be belting out all the parts for my students. And, you know, that really takes a wear and tear on your vocal cords. And so I went to and had an assessment. They put a camera down my throat. And yeah, you could see my cords had been pretty well thrashed. By the way. I, was using, I mean, I've been using my, my vocal cords to make a living for, you know, 20 years. So... I give it <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, I I want to read you this quote from my interview with uh, uh, Julie Stafford. Um, she said, "I was working at the Trident as a waitress, and I was pretty full of myself at that point. I was singing and gigging and doing a lot of stuff and working to make a living and trying to be a good waitress and get good tips." You have to be quick and bring people things when they expect it. Carlos Santana would come in and leave $20 tips. Liz Styers was a cashier, and I'm sure I was one of the most difficult people to deal with because I just wanted to get back to my table, and I would come up and have small hissy fits waiting for people in line to pay their bills. She must, <laughs> she must have thought I was just horrible. One of the other waiters told me that Ezra Mohawk was going to step down as a singer in the Jerry Garcia band. Liz had mentioned that they needed another background singer. I went and auditioned. Liz said, you and I don't get along so well. I'll hire you, but the deal is you can't talk to Jerry. She thought I was going to be a major bitch because of our interactions at the Trident. Liz <laughs> and I got to be good friends. When she figured out who I was and I figured out who she was, we really got along well, and I think our bl vocal blend got better at that point. We were aware constantly of what the other person was doing because their sound needs to be your sound. The closest thing to your spouse is your singing partner. It's a soul <laughs> connection, and there's nothing that feels better than having a good harmonic blend with another partner. When you're making that harmony and adding to the music, it's great. I would never do that, but to me, the Garcia band were just a local band. I didn't understand the whole, quote-unquote, dead thing. I didn't have any consciousness of that being such a big deal. I promised Liz, and I wanted to keep my promise, so I hardly talked to Jerry at all. For a whole time I was there, I barely had a conversation with him. He talked to me first. We had a couple of conversations of gifts he would be given on the road. People would throw these quote-unquote spirit bags at him. They were filled with herbs and crystals. It kind of creeped him out because if you believe in that stuff, the crystal absorbs the energy of the person who's been using that crystal for a while. He didn't know these people. Fancy may or may not have been before. He was always gracious about it. Anyway, she goes on. He talked to her about the audiences. Is that and and I I wasn't sure if you had heard that interview before, but is that the way you recollect bringing in uh, the Trident? First of all, was just this magnet 
of insane music all the time. But to know that Liz Styers was working there uh, and Julie, um, is that how you remember how it went down? <laughs> I have heard that interview. I haven't heard for for a few years, but um, so it's it's you know mostly true. I I don't think it would ever have been me to say don't talk to Jerry, but I do think that I was. Um, she was younger, a little brassy, and a little full of herself, and I was just trying to protect Jerry from anybody that would because we're going to be on the bus, you know. Absolutely. Time and you know it's like. The man needs his space. And I didn't go, you know, chat at Jerry unless, you know, I gave him a lot of respect and I wanted somebody to do the same. I had auditioned one other woman before her and Jerry just said, find somebody, which was kind of, an, uh, you know, that's a one-off. I mean, it was always like girlfriends in the band. And I think at that point he was getting ready to bring Ron Tut back, which was always his plan. And um, so I, I remember auditioning one woman. I can't even remember her name. And really, and then, you can't, you can't, you can't remember that. Remember who you auditioned? I would love to know that. No, name. she was yeah. not somebody I knew well. I think she was. A, I was a setting with Pamela Poland at the time. Huh. Pamela was, you know, Mad Dogs and Englishman from from Joe Cocker's band. Sure. She was in the Valley, and she had another student. And she said, "Well, you might try her because I had told her." And so. You know, it wasn't bad with this woman, but and and uh, but it but Julie, I knew about Julie. I knew she was working with uh, uh, Judy Davis as a vocal coach, who's a really powerhouse vocal coach in Berkeley. Anyway, um, and and Julie was, you know, a little about herself, but I didn't have a feeling like I didn't like her, and I didn't say I wouldn't. It didn't sound like me to say I don't. I, I don't. No, like it doesn't. I. I just. I, I just the way that I just feel like you're not that bossy, you know. I, no, but but it doesn't matter, you know. You can. I didn't know her, and I was and I was wary because I was protective of Jerry, and I wanted it to work, and I wanted to just make sure that the respect was there, and uh, but I think we worked out our parts pretty quickly, and. And, you know, we had some fun on the road together and it really, uh, it worked out okay. It really did. And, uh, you know, she's a sweetheart. There was nothing bad about it, but her feeling, uh, well, that's kind of funny. I just think she wasn't, um, she just wasn't hip to the whole, she didn't really get Jerry in the dead and the whole thing. And I, I think she did over time. She got used to understanding, you know, what the deal was and, and how to react to things. I mean, I think that it was very, very easy to, you know, you weren't being curt about it. It was just like, um, you know, you're you're going to be walking into a situation you have no clue about. Um, you really need to, you know, you need to create some boundaries here. You know, I, I don't I, I think that that would have been I don't care if it was I mean, I just brought somebody new into uh, the nonprofit that I work at a few months ago. And. You know, early on when you're sort of feeling each other out, I mean, it they can take words ver, ver, verbatim, and then you look back once you get tighter, and you're like, "Wow, I was oh, yeah. really it's kind of overprotective about that." But you know, I mean, to me, for the record, I mean, this was a short-lived duo of Liz Styers, Julie Stafford, but it's the most powerful uh, vocal blend of of the singers that Jerry had in his band of all time, in in this host's opinion, and. Yeah. uh you know, I mean, can you talk about at the end uh, of Ezra's reign, how did, what, did it, 
were you aware on the bandstand or was it just like one day you got a a call or maybe you know jimmy was like hey you know uh we need a new singer i mean how how was it evident that things were kind of falling apart uh with ezra and daoud towards the end in, in 81. That's a really good question. And I've kind of racked my brains about that. The way that things operated, because Jerry had the whole Grateful Dead schedule, there was a lot always on him. So there wasn't, you know, we didn't, if we weren't gigging, we weren't seeing him and we didn't know what his plans were. That's why Melvin Seal showed up at the Catalyst and, Mer and, and Catalyst and, and Merle Saunders was there too, because Jerry hadn't, you know, he didn't communicate like in, in certain kinds of ways. So I wouldn't say I knew anything about it, but my sense was there was some tension, but maybe it wasn't between Ezra and Daoud. I kind of assumed it was, but that might not have been the case. And um, and I knew that she and I, I think I, I mentioned this to you, that our styles were really different. And and she had way more experience and she had been fronting bands and, you know, selling songs. And so she had a kind of confidence and she was, you know, a number of years older than me that I didn't have. So I was a little more like, you know, I'm trying to blend with Jerry and blend with the scene and not like get people to look at me on stage or anything. And so I know she brought that up, but I thought we did pretty well together. I don't remember there being any big event at all. It's like we got back from that tour. And then I don't know how long it was before Jerry booked another set of probably Keystone gigs. And, but it was like, I got, I probably heard it through the grapevine, you know, and it might've been Jimmy, but I wasn't told right away. And then Jerry, I do remember him saying, well, maybe you can find somebody. You know? <laughs> Dude, he was so laissez-faire about the whole thing. He was. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I remember when Ezra and I first, we first were going to rehearsals, I guess we were rehearsing at Front Street. And, and Jerry's saying, hey, you know, if anybody else has any original songs they want to bring in, I was just floored. And later I understood that Ezra, you know, had sold the song to Cindy Lauper and she had she had a lot more creds as a, as a songwriter. But the fact that he would say that is so, you know, it just really tells you who he was. He was really um, very inclusive on one hand, but, you, you know, if you weren't doing a gig, you didn't know what he was thinking, so. That's just so classic. I, I mean, I need you to uh, listen to this. I'm gonna. This is from uh, uh, Jimmy uh, uh, at the time, going as uh, Jimmy Jacobs, Jimmy Warren at the time. Now yeah. Jimmy Jacobs. He said. Uh, he said to me, so this is when he first joined the band, which was about five or six months uh, before you did. Yeah. He said the first gig was Keystone Berkeley, January 1981. <laughs> And they just told me which night. I went over there and showed up at 9 or 9.30 and nobody was there. Steve Parrish wasn't there. I went up to the club and I went up to the club and I said, quote, I'm supposed to play with Garcia tonight. And the guy at the front was like, yeah, right. I paid to get in. And the rest of the guys showed up an hour and a half later. Once they told Parrish, he gave the front man a really hard time. I learned my lesson. Garcia's gigs don't start early. Rock Scully was the manager, but if you ask me, it was Parrish who kept it all together. Now, I mean, how can you talk about the the the, the uh, you know uh, if there was an, a, a time with a gig where you guys maybe like you even said 
you know, you were chanting, uh, doing that Buddhist <laughs> chant uh, in the car, yeah. hoping Jerry wouldn't get lost in the hills. Um, was there a time like a, a humorous time? Like to me, that's the, one of the greatest stories where Jimmy shows up. He's like, yeah, I'm here to play. They're like, get out of here, man. And then, and then, you know, it turns out it was, you know, they showed up when they wanted to. I mean, did that happen pretty regularly? Because to me, like I go to shows now and you know, cats come out maybe 10, 15 minutes late, but you know, back then, I mean, I mean, George Clinton, <laughs> George Clinton told me that, you know, Sly Stone, there was a show he was at that. Sly didn't even go. He he refused to go on stage. And you know, I'm just wondering, like, if there was like some kind of moment when you guys were like, "Oh my God, we're like two hours <laughs> behind this this when we're supposed to start." I, you know, you'd think that there was. I mean, my memory of getting to we played Houston a lot in San Francisco, particularly. I don't remember it being ten o'clock before. I I really kind of felt like we got there around nine, but um. But you know, everybody has different things that they logged. I, we did have, I mean, this is maybe not answering the question, but we did have a gig in Boston. And uh, what name or, is the name of that theater? The, or, and, the, Orphe, the Orpheum maybe? I guess it would have been, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, the power went down. Uh, <laughs> you know, we played the first set or the first show and then, and then in between, no, it was a set. So we left the audience and then we were supposed to come back and do the second set. And the, and there was a there was a blackout in Boston. It was a brownout, I guess they call them there. But right. in any case, because they had AC current, the house lights were still on, but there was no sound system. There was nothing. And there was this whole place was full of people waiting for us to come out. And Rock Skelly walked out on the stage and he started yelling to the audience, I'm sorry, we can't play. And people got really, really, really upset. They didn't oh really get it because they hadn't left yet and seen that all the lights were out in the city. So they everybody got really worried that the audience was just going to run down the stage and start getting, you know, rowdy. And they actually snuck us out through this really, you know, down through these, the staircase underneath the theater and out into the alley and into cars to get us out of there. <laughs> <laughs> Some people were like, yeah, no, I mean, that would have been, uh, I mean, because what was funny was that, uh, Clinton was George Clinton was like he's like people were were so happy that they went to a show where Sly didn't come out like they're like yo I was at that show man but with Garcia experience yeah right yeah. and they credited him back the tickets but it wasn't until people you know it took them a while to figure out that they were they were not being screwed basically <laughs> that's just hysterical and we had to walk like up the like, even the elevators were out in the hotel we had to walk up 14 me and Julie Stafford walked up like 14 flights oh. So it was a very memorable night. It was especially for her, and uh, yeah, I remember that night really well. I, I, yeah, I, I know we went on late, and we and the, and the breaks were long. That was really the deal. Yeah, I was. Uh, the breaks were really long. I mean, you know, Liz. I mean, do you remember? Was because it seems to me that you guys went on a pretty extensive uh, tour. Uh, after Ezra left, you guys did a pretty extensive East Coast tour mm -hmm. in '81, and I know Ron Tut was on that tour. Was yeah. that was that your first time touring on the East Coast? Yeah, that was a big deal, and um, and I hung out with Ron a lot on that gig, on those on those gigs. Can you talk about that, man? I mean, I I am so grateful that 
you know, he chose to spend some cosmic time with me. And I just, not to mention just being just such an incredibly gifted rhythm player. I mean, yeah. he was like, I mean, he was like, yeah. uh, in my <laughs> mind, in my mind, he was the epitome of a beautiful Christian person. Yeah. He tried to live by, uh, you know, I don't want to get too deep into this, but he just, I mean, even at the end, whenever he saw, the last time he saw Garcia, he was, he was trying to foist a, you know, mere yeah. Christianity on him. But at the same time, it was like, so you would, I mean, he, he also was a, he didn't do any drugs, you know, he wasn't a partier really. So I just wonder like, will you guys like go get a bite to eat? Like, what? how would you spend, there was so much time. I mean, that's the whole thing about being on tour is like, you play two hours a night and the rest of the time you got to kill time to figure out what you're going to do to keep your sanity. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he was just around, he was just such a kind guy. We talked about everything. Yeah. He, um, he and I decided, I guess the Rolling Stones, that, that tour, the Stones were touring at the same time and they were swapping bus drivers with us. Whoa. So we would have like, their bus driver and they would get ours. I don't know why that was, but we would get these stories about how their tour was going, which was kind of fun. And then we were playing New York and, and uh, the Stones were playing Meadow Suite. So me and Ron, they asked if any of us wanted to go. Nobody wanted to go, but, but Ron and I went and they took us in the tour bus. It was really fun. You know, we like rode in the tour bus, just the two of us and the driver and we're chatting and you know, we go roll underneath the Meadow Suite and we get out and we go, we have special seating. You know, he was just he was just fun to hang with, fun to talk to. Uh, we watched that show. We were supposed to go backstage, but we were in special seating and and Mick Jagger ran right up the aisle we were sitting at and was like literally five feet from us. And a whole slew of women behind us leapt out towards him and they landed on top of us like it really oh, was my, this is not cool <laughs> no it was rude one of them had a cigarette they burned ron's head Ron was <laughs> we were like oh we were my god like, screw the rolling stones we went back to the hotel but um he left me you know he gave me a copy of mere christianity which of course at the time i was just thought it was really sweet and really kind and you know, decades later, I read it, and it was a brilliant book, and it it was a form of Christianity. It was not the born again, holy roller, you know, party. You know, no, you know, this is really important. I want you to no, tell me, tell this is so important, Liz, because yeah. you're much more well versed in this stuff in the sense of be, just reading it. What, yeah. what? Because what it wasn't the the it wasn't the dogmatic. Bible thumping. What was it though? What was it that that made it relatively appealing? If you can, uh, you know, think about C.S. Lewis and the brilliance of of his writing and his right. books. And have nothing, you know, his intelligence and his experience applied to what is the truth of Christianity and and what is the empirical evidence for this way of living. It's just a really beautifully written book, and um, I happen to love C.S. Lewis, but Ron had written this inscription on the front of this book. I didn't find it for years. Wow. I didn't get, I didn't open that second page and see that he had written me this really lovely note with his phone number asking me, inviting me to get in touch anytime. And it was just like, a, you know, it was a beautiful move. And I felt really honored to have gotten to know him. But I will tell you one thing. I have been on the stage with a lot of drummers. I have never experienced the Ron Tut experience before or since. 
Well, why don't you break it down? Why don't, let's just what's the feeling like? Because <clears throat> I mean, that dude was such a crispy, delicious player, and he wasn't like overly flashy. And you know, no. he always but talked was, about. I just would. Yeah, it was really much, much more power, and it was like Rolling Thunder. But it was, it was like the pocket was <laughs> was redefined by Ron Tut. <laughs> and you know he and john they had originally played they had you know they had their first you know jgb band and he and john i mean john's such a great player and that when when that relationship happens between a drummer and a bass player you know there's nothing better than a, a rhythm section that's got it that you know that are just work that well together so it was brilliant and it was far beyond anything that before or since that i'd ever experienced you know he's they played. They played in that band Legion of Mary together, uh, which was in '75. Which is Garcia Martin. Did you ever play with Martin Fierro, by the way? I never did. I heard about it, but I never played. With him. What a cosmic, yeah, unbelievable! But you know, I, I just want to read. This is pretty intense tour. Liz Steyer's introduction to the East Coast. Um, you guys did a bunch of run-up gigs in October in the Bay Area, Keystone and the Stone. Uh, Concord Pavilion, <clears throat> and then Halloween night, 1981, Upper Darby, Pennsylvania. Then the next night, uh, Tuttle North Gym in Brockport. Then two nights later, Painters Mill Star Theater in Maryland. Yeah. And then the the night after Albany. After that, Capitol Theater. Yeah. Uh, and then McDonough, Georgetown University. Lawrenceville, New Jersey, the Palladium. I guess that's when Tut probably burnt. They burned his hair because uh, that was right. when the stone. Yeah, 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 yeah. That would have been the Palladium, right? And uh, and then uh, Sym Symphony Hall, uh, which was in Springfield. I think the show you're talking about with the blackout or the brownout, uh, November thirteenth, eighty one, Orpheum Theater, Boston. Then uh, UVM, Patrick Gymnasium. Um, it goes on and on and on. You finished the show, though, and I was just curious if there was any memories of this. <clears throat> November 19th, 1981, uh, I believe those were Melvin's first shows with the band. I could be wrong about that, but you guys wound up playing a very bizarre three sets, which is almost unheard of. And yeah. I just did Melvin join you on that tour because I he definitely wasn't with you or was he with you from the beginning of the was, tour? I thought he was with us for that whole tour. I okay, so so he was there. I mean, what did you think of Melvin early on too? Because there's another cat, yeah, who complete. I mean, his he didn't even know who the dead were. He had no clue. He was he didn't let any he didn't let any of them touch his gear. For, they had to rent uh, his rigs for three a long time before he actually trusted. The dead, because there was all the skeletons and all the imagery, you know. I mean, just like that must have been, yeah, so so beautiful taking these bus rides all through New England. I I mean, oh, just it was put... beautiful. It was an amazing. That was an amazing tour for me, and and Melvin was just he was a sweet man. He was such a brilliant player, and I know oh. that he's clueless, but he had, you know, there were just there is a way where spirit moves through everybody differently. And the way it came to Melvin was, you know, he'd be standing behind. We always stood, the backup singers were always standing in front of the B3. And, you know, he would like, he would hit a chord, hit the Leslie, and it would just be like being blasted by God. Oh, man, this is so <laughs> from, great. <laughs> you know, like from behind. And so 
I think, yeah, I'm sure the whole culture of the drug thing and the Jerry and the and the Grateful Dead thing was was weird for him. I wouldn't, I didn't know that at the time because I didn't really have a lot of objectivity about where he was coming from. Later, I sang in a gospel choir for years and I really understood the culture of gospel and where he was coming from. Um, but I don't know that, you know, that Jerry, maybe Jerry really understood that or what, but Jerry had an instinct to hire him and he, what a brilliant move, you know? So that yeah. tour was huge amount of fun. We were, we had a really great bus and we all had bunks that would, that were windowed all the way down the side so we could lie there and look at the fall colors and ride up through New Hampshire. It was really something. And we actually played uh, Vermont and that's where my father my father lived in Middlebury and, and, you know, I was like a kid, I was like 25 and, you know, I'm like, dad, I'm playing it, you know, <laughs> playing at the university of Vermont. And he came and they took really good care of him. They put, they put him on stage. Harry Poppick was doing sound, you know, he was put on stage right next to Harry and they made him a, you know, a lobster dinner in the back. You know, Are you kidding me? This is the great, I was just thinking about, I was listening back just to, I was peppering you with all these questions about your, your father and, and like his jazz leanings and you were talking about like, you know, he throws stuff on. I was like, well, what kind of, what kind of cats were you listening to? You're like, it was one week out of the year. You know, you weren't like really hanging out. And like, that is what, I mean, it's like, Hey, Jerry, my dad's coming. Can you get him on the guest list? And the next thing you know, they got a lobster dinner for him. And he's sitting on the, on the bandstand. Dude, that's oh, yeah. un oh no. And Jerry came out to meet him and shake his hand. I mean, it was just, it was a really beautiful experience. And now, years later, because I went, anyway, I recognized that uh, he probably had just started mentoring Trey, because Trey was probably 18 at the time. And that's, he was at uh, UV, he was, he was going to school in Burlington, and he would take the bus out and sit with my dad. And so all of that was just starting when we did that show, and uh, right around that time. You know, what's and, really amazing, I mean, and I am not um a fish head at all but what's so what's so insane <laughs> so <laughs> the one thing i do remember is that I, I got a hold of a book in the late 90s on fish and trey was talking about he didn't get the grateful dead and then he went his first show was in april of 1982 so this was exactly this was mm -hmm. exactly and that's he sort of had his mind blown and kind of got it in his own way but this is you're exactly right it was during that time. Did you, maybe I asked you this? Did did Garcia see your dad play before? No, no, I don't think I don't know where he would. I mean, later he and Trey played, but my dad wasn't playing any kind of music out. He was composing. He was writing symphonies and and fugues and all kinds of stuff with his you know classical. No, style. he was. I mean, the man was a stone genius. Uh, I, I mean, I, I yeah. did at that point. At that point. Was he, maybe he didn't, I know you talked about him really looking down on the hippie music of the, or the jam music, psychedelic music of your era, so to speak. Um, he just kind of didn't feel like people really took the proper time to hone their craft, or at least that was on the, did, did he, at that point, maybe he didn't love the music, but did he respect and love how far you had come in your career? You know, I can't answer that. I remember him going out on stage and I was behind him and, and we went to get him seated and, and he looked out and there were 10,000 people or something there, or maybe he was five. I don't know. 
He's like, wow, I've never had an audience this big for anything I've ever done. <laughs> no, that, like, that gym, that gym, I don't think that holds more than a couple thousand people. That's okay, the most amazing. Yeah, it was, I don't remember. It either. doesn't matter. The point is that it was mobbed and he was like, I've never played yeah, for anything. And, 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 you know, when the lights go down and, and you, you're walking out with the flashlights, it, you know, they just, people just screamed. And he, so I think he was thrilled for me. Uh, I, but I think he didn't know what to make of it. And I think probably when he worked with Trey, he got more of an introduction uh, because Trey had been classically trained enough that he could sort of lead my dad out of his little box and vice versa. And so mm. they had a melding of understanding, which probably opened my dad's eyes. I'm also curious. I mean, I, granted, you weren't playing an instrument per se, but vocally, you know, it's equally as important. I mean, did you... Harry Poppick was running the sound, but you were playing all these funky places. I'm not even talking about on the West Coast. I'm just like, you know, did you, was sound, was there sound checks? <laughs> I mean, the, I guess the point was like, you know, like, were you just going, I mean, today people perseverate over, you know, whether they want to wear in-ear monitors, that's a whole other freaking story. And nobody did that back then, but it was like, you know, they want to be able to hear themselves and they're just perseverating on perfection of sound and you have these state-of-the-art systems. That was not the case. I mean, it was not the case at all. And I just wonder, were there nightmare situations if you, did you guys always do a sound check and, or would you just get up cold and be like, well, I hope it works out tonight. You know, that's a really good, I know we did them some of the times. I don't get the feeling we did them all the time. Harry Poppick was really good. But yeah. I was always singing the lower harmony. See, if you're singing the high part, you can you cut through and you hear yourself. So I was always, if anybody was struggling, it was me, because it's a I was often buried between Garcia and the high. So the middle voice has to really tune in to get the pitch right. And I can remember being having times where I was struggling, but mostly that doesn't come back as a as a big issue for me. It's certainly. At other gigs, I have had that issue, but I didn't feel it at the Garcia band. I don't know. It didn't come up. That's beautiful. I mean, I, that's just, it's so hard to, uh, I mean, my fave for this host, um, I, I love Ron Tutt, and Liz Dyer's also foisted on me a couple of beautiful shows, I believe, uh, from Arcata, California, Mojo's uh, 318, 317, Chico. I'm not sure which one you gave me, but these are amazing shows with Ron after Run for the Roses was released. My favorite Jerry Garcia band tour ever is this tour in June of 1982. Uh, absolutely blistering shows. And uh, I don't know if they released the right one, but uh, thankfully they did release one. And this is the new vault release coming June 30th. And it's just such a high honor to talk to somebody who was on the bandstand in Liz Styers, Cape Cod, 1982. Um, you know, how do you feel about not, not the release itself, but just the idea that, you didn't necessarily get to finish the tour on your terms because you got ill. I just yeah. wonder, like at the end of the day, like you're somebody who, um, you know, you care a lot about delivering and doing a great job and completion. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm looking here and I can hear Liz uh, it in Portland, Maine, I believe six twenty, And then 
I think you said you got to Richmond, Virginia, but then got very sick after that. It was it was Julie on her own at in Pittsburgh and the Capitol Theater. And I just wanted you to talk a little bit about how much how much like sort of manic it was like because you must have been having a ball and then all of a sudden you get sick and you have to leave. And I just wanted you to talk a little bit about that and um, and any memories you have from this South Yarmouth show from June 18th. Yeah, I I can't I can't peg uh, I can't peg that show. Uh, the the Portland Maine. So that was the Cape Cod Theater show. Was Portland Maine? No, no, no. I want to be clear. The 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 the, the vault release is six eighteen eighty two Cape Cod Coliseum in South Yarmouth, Mass. And then okay, two nights yeah. later, you were on that gig. It was uh, Cumberland County Civic Center in Portland, Maine. Yeah. Okay. So that was, so that part of the tour, um, I can't really, I can't locate anything about Portland, Maine. Uh, I mean, excuse me, about the Yarmouth Theater. Sure. You know, then it happened. The night, the Portland, Maine gig was, you know, I, I remember we hung out in Portland a little bit, but but the, the, the show went late and then we had to take, we were on the bus all night. And I probably was already, getting sick, but I didn't know it. And um, because I, I was really sick, like it it was really unclear. And to, to this day, it's really unclear because they didn't really understand. Like I had a systemic infection that they couldn't find. And I, I could have just died. I remember these nurses coming in and bathing me in alcohol because my fever was so high. Oh my God, you had a really high fever, huh? Super high fever. I oh. couldn't even get to the phone to call somebody to come get me. I was delirious for hours by myself in a hotel room. Um, and I think maybe Jimmy finally knocked on the door or somebody got in the door. And it was just, uh, so I was probably already getting sick at that part of the tour. And and because I was so sick, there was a way in which I just shut down. Um, because I really couldn't, I couldn't manage the lifestyle. <laughs> you know, I was way too sensitive a being to be, you know, pulling that schedule, you know, doing the drugs, being up all night, doing, you know, just show after show. It was really, um, you know, kind of became clear as soon as I got back. I had to really lay low for weeks to get my strength back, and that's when I started to make the decision, you know, to just change my life, and I did. I mean, I moved out of California within a few months of that. Wow. That is really... So you remember being in Portland, Maine, in the town. You're yeah. saying... Were you actually already somewhat delirious at that show? Or... I, you said you... I can't... <laughs> Can one remember when one was delirious? No, I, no, I'm just wondering, like, the, the, the nurses bathing you... Was in Maine or was that in Virginia? In no, that was in Virginia. Okay, so, so you got I, all the way down there. You took yeah, the bus down. Right? I was up all night on that bus ride. And I remember that I was not well on the bus. And uh, Jimmy thinks that John and Jerry actually flew. He says, don't you remember they put us on the bus? And, and I'm sure they did. I mean, they did. I'm sure that it, you said it was Rock and Jerry and John. They flew down yeah. and then everybody else was yeah. on the bus. Yeah. Um, but, you know, maybe there was so so we got to the hotel. I remember we got there at Lake Paranor. We checked into these rooms. And then at some point in the next few hours, I, I started to try and call for help and I couldn't I couldn't make the phone work. So there was I went from there to the hospital. 
I guess they called an ambulance. And then I was in the hospital, I guess, a couple nights. And I, you know, Jimmy came in to see me after the show in Richmond and they were getting ready to leave. And, and uh, I forget how they, I guess uh, the, the manager of that tour, the East Coast guy, I'm forgetting. John, John Shear. John Shear came and got me and took me uh, out, of the, out of the hospital into the airport. So, you know, I was sick. And I was also, you know, probably reaching some kind of a, a limit as to what I could really continue to do in that band. Um, I definitely would have probably made it less than you uh, with all the debauchery going on every night. And then having to <clears throat> come out and play and, you know, and I, that word performance, I don't like. But, the, you know, just get people to, to have a good time and be on your game. Um, do you ever... I mean, in, I'm, I already kind of know the answer, but did you, did Garcia ever call you or check in to see if you were okay? Or was that basically the last time you ever talked to Jerry? Well, I went to see uh, Jerry. Let's see, how did that go? No, the answer would be no. Maybe Rock did, you know, Jimmy did. I don't know, maybe John did. I don't think Jerry did. I think everybody knew I was sick. Yeah. And then they went off, you know, they were finishing up their tour and getting back. Um, God, I can't, you know, maybe, maybe there was a contact, but it wasn't with the office. I don't remember ever going back in and um, like, ah, boy, that's really vague for me. It's okay. No, no I was going to say, because actually well, it's funny. I, was sick. I mean, I was sick for some weeks. I didn't just pop off back from that. And, uh, yeah, I mean, just just sort of like knowing, I, just I don't know, I'm just call. I mean, we of course we didn't have iPhones or cell phones then, but um, it it just seems like if somebody in my band had gotten ill, especially if I wasn't on the bus down there, I would have at least wanted to, you know, call and say hi. I mean, the point is that here's the bottom line: he was so. <clears throat> I mean, just for the record, the the electric Garcia band tour ended a couple nights later, but then. Jerry and John wound up doing like six acoustics. Uh, they did, they did almost eight, another week and a half of just Jerry and John shows. So they, they didn't even get home. They stayed out. That's right. I didn't. That's right. Jerry. I mean, they played, it's funny. They went back to all the places that, you know, Warner theater, tower theater, they played the Boston opera house, probably worried in, that they were going to have a blackout again. So they, then, you know, it was just Jerry and John, they finished in Chicago. Um, you know, it, it just was so um, wonderful to hear from you again. And I just kind of wanted you to just, the floor is yours about how you wanted to set the record straight about your experience with your singing partners in the band. And, you know, ultimately looking back on it now to see this come out, this release that's about to come out. Um, you know, they even say it in the write up here. Um, you know, this new installment, they say, is diving into an off-requested era not previously explored on any prior Garcia archival collection, the early 1980s. And so, you know, the floor is yours. I just would love you to talk about uh, the people, uh, you know, albeit it wasn't the longest tenure, but still, how do you feel about um, all of that today? Hmm. 
Well, it's interesting that, that, you know, your perspective on your experiences just continues to grow as you go out throughout your lifetime. So my gratitude for the tiny little role that I got to play has grown exponentially over my life. So I may have rose colored glasses when I look back because it was extraordinary for so many reasons and how many, you know, women got to be on stage with Garcia and sing, you know, not very many. It's a small, no. and I, you know, and the experience to me spiritually and uh, to go out on stage, to be on stage, to be singing and looking over at Jerry and having him look at me and put those harmonies together with him. That's what stays in my mind, you know? And yeah, I, many years, I mean, years after I did that interview with you, I listened to to Ezra's and I listened to Julie's and I was really, uh, I, you know, it, I was really surprised because I didn't carry that any animosity at all or or memory of there being some really, that I had somehow played a big role. It, it seems that she felt I had played a role in her not being in the band. And my sense of it was that it never had anything to do with, except for that Dowd was leaving, Ron was coming back, and you know, I was never told anything about it. Um, I really enjoyed, you know, I have a memory of her at the time, the Columbia, the space shuttle was going and she was writing a song about it. And I, you know, I just thought she was a super talented woman. And I, you know, did not um, carry any of the recollections that she carried. And um, for me, you know, this coming out now is, it's, you know, it's, it's extraordinary. It's kind of a shock. Um, the contract that they sent out was, you know, like they really assured us that they were all about wanting the musicians to get paid. And of course, in this day and age, that's just, you know, that's a little bit of a shock. <laughs> you know, it's so cosmic. I just want to be, and I don't know if this is, um, I don't know the genesis of who's releasing this stuff, but I interviewed Bruce Hornsby uh, maybe four months ago, uh, just January, December, something like that. Mm -hmm. And the guy, the PR person that I was working with uh, for Bruce, uh, I did the interview. And then a couple weeks later, he said, hey, man, you don't by chance have any contact for uh, Jimmy Jacobs or Jimmy Ward. I said, oh, I sure do. And now and then you so it's clear that somehow they, that was when the contracts were going out. I don't know. I mean, it was red light mm -hmm. management. I have no idea how it all came together. But. Yeah. You know, it was let me ask you one question as honestly as you can, because, you know, it was just let's face it. I mean, it was everywhere. Uh, cocaine was everywhere. Drugs were everywhere. It was yeah. just the way it was. I mean, and and you you openly acknowledge that when you came back to California and you really needed to make some serious um, lifestyle changes in order to survive. And I wonder if it's fair that. I mean, that maybe you changed as a person too, you know what I'm trying to say? Like, do you think that maybe, I mean, cause yeah, Julie was full of herself, you know, Ezra, a little bit of a loose cannon and maybe a little bit envious or jealous of you, or just, you were the younger person. It was easy to blame you for no reason. But, um, do you feel like maybe you, uh, how did you grow as a person by, um, changing your lifestyle? Oh, gosh, Jake. I mean, I had a really extraordinary foundation underneath all those years. 
I had been exposed to a lot of Eastern teachings, and we talked about this last. Oh time. my God, it was insane! That's the greatest part, one of the greatest parts of my interviewing career ever. Yeah, so you know, my if you want to call it soul growth, there was something that was calling me for more in my life, and and also more music because I went on to to do a lot musically and to write a lot, and um, being in a touring band where the the schedule was such that you're you're going to be put your put yourself through that kind of ringer and and be exposed to all of that lifestyle that really you know it became clear to me that I wasn't going to survive it I didn't have the you know I wasn't gonna uh I certainly wasn't going to thrive um and that tour kind of brought it all home to me and then it really in the next couple of months I made that decision and as a result my my development is a human, uh, creatively, spiritually, emotionally, every way, intellectually, was so enhanced by stepping out of that when I did. And I really know a lot of people who just kept kind of playing music and partying and doing that lifestyle. And I, I would not want that for myself because a lot gets lost. You get into your 30s and then, you know, you're still partying, you're in your late 30s and then you're moving into your 40s. It's like, that's it. It's like done and dusted. That's your, that's your, that's the ball game after a while. No, you're and absolutely right. I had, I had several really great um, chapters in my life that had nothing to do with Jerry Garcia band that I would have never had, including raising this amazing son, um, but also working with women's health and being a doula and, and, and then, you know, promoting my own album and writing tons of songs and playing with tons of other people that were not big names but who gave me extraordinary experience. So, yeah, I don't regret that a bit. I wouldn't want to have gone on like the, for decades as, as the backup singer. Right. No, I, I completely, I mean, uh, I also feel like that being said, um, one of the issues with, um, <clears throat> there's an addictive quality to playing, to being a road dog, just because you did even talk about amidst all the sort of, you know, insanity that there was an incredible, you were playing with a, a, a couple of, I mean, really, when you think about the deep spiritual lineage of Ron Tutt and Jerry Garcia, and John Kahn, and Melvin Seals, and yeah. I mean, like, you know, that was spiritual too, but yet, I mean, you know, I mean, Melvin said it, you know, I mean, he said, he goes, where did everybody go? Why is everybody always leaving? But they never, they were always respectful. They never partied in front of him. Um, and yet there was still something spiritual about, and I mean, it's just being playing music and, yes. and ra raising the collective consciousness is also incredible. But I mean, this was deep individual work for Liz Styers and, uh, yeah. and now, and I mean, just want to be clear. I mean, uh, how was the drum circle last weekend? <laughs> that went, uh, well, and I'm I'm starting Harmony Group, and I'm starting to teach here again. And I teach a little bit online, uh, mostly. Jake, I have this amazing yard, and I, you know, I'm all about growing my trees and my flowers. And, I love it. Uh, I love and it. Playing and writing for myself. I will always write. I, I that's my really big passion and love is writing, both pro, both prose, and I'm working on different pieces to get out, but also songs. So life is good for, for me. And I feel like I, you know, I'm going to drive to San Diego next week and watch my kid graduate from medical school. I mean, wow. it don't get much better than that. 
Well, that's fantastic. First of all, he's so lucky to have you as a mom and, um, and you're also, again, you're going to be, you're going to have the possibility of being able to come back through Tucson again on that trip. It's a very reasonable I-8. You can yes. come right back. But I'm, he, I'm flying this time. But oh, I you're flying. Yeah, you're, you know, I'm, what I'm saying is I, yeah. I, I would love to um, yeah. come, come, come out to Silver City and, and, uh, and actually really dive into more of uh, your, um, your writing and, and your, and your prose and we can get sort of get that out um into the into the intergalactic because uh you know at this time uh there's no reason so many cats are hung up on uh not everybody but they want to they don't want to release something because they want it they think it could be better or more perfect but i've just learned over time and you know maybe it's a page out of the garcia book you just you have to constantly create and you hope that some of that stuff turns into some very inspiring stuff that other people are going to gravitate to. And so with you, it's important to not promote it. There's, it's not about self-promotion. It's just about getting creative stuff out of your system so you can continue to raise, have a high vibration, and also just stay very healthy, you know. And I think that that's a really important thing. And I, uh, I look okay. forward to exploring that with you, you know. Okay, Jake. Well, uh, yeah, you would enjoy it here. And I'm sure I'll be back through Tucson in my van. And then I'll definitely grab you for lunch. And we can, we can talk about all of that. All um, right, my friend. It was, it was uh, such a, it was such so nice to do this set. Uh, Cape Cod Coliseum, June 30th coming out uh, at the end of next month. Liz Dyer's such an honor to hear your voice. I'll talk to you soon. Okay, Jake, you take good care. All right, my friend. Bye. Bye.